For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, uh, Brooke Saporin, um, professor of Chinese religion, philosophy, and comparative thought at the University of Chicago. Uh, many of you have heard Brooke speak here before, including uh, on this uh, Zoom function, but also back at Irving Park Road when we had our temple there. Um, and actually, we've been benefited by uh, numbers of Ancient Dragon uh, Sangha members having uh, uh, participated in Brooks uh, courses at uh, University of Chicago. Uh, I consider uh, Brooks Sapporin to be uh, the most brilliant and stimulating scholar of Chinese Buddhism. Um, it's, we're, it's just a great privilege to have him in Chicago and to have him speaking here. So thank you very much, Brooke. Thank you, Tagen. Can you, uh, can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, yes, thanks for having me back today uh, um, for the Zoom session. I'm um, going to talk about something I think I've talked about a little at some of these previous uh, visits, uh, the Buddhahood of insentient beings or the Buddha nature of insentient beings. Um, but uh, sort of, I hope, from a little bit of a different angle, so I hope this won't just seem like repetition of things I've said before. Uh, but um, I'm actually going to be speaking from a written text, but sort of riffing around and uh, maybe batting that around with you. And this was in this little magazine some time ago, a very short piece. You can see that issue is on the Buddhahood of Plants and Trees. Um, and there's a link to that, which you can get the PDF of that. Um, so to start with, again, I'll. what if I were to say, so far, no universe without life has ever been discovered. Um, that's just an empirical statement, right? So far, what has been found, as far as we know, up to this point, there hasn't been a universe yet that has not produced life, right? I think everybody can in immediately agree with that in the form in which it's stated, right? Uh, if I were to go a further step and say, so far, no universe has been discovered in which you do not exist. That claim is really not different empirically, right? That is simply a fact. The only universe we know about is a universe that includes your life. Very obviously, on the same principle, I could say no universe has yet been discovered that does not include this moment the thing we're doing right now, this word coming out of my mouth. Never in all history has a universe been found, so far at least, that does not contain 
this word I'm speaking right now, this moment, this activity, this thing you are doing. None of that, I think, is controversial. And I want to press outward from that, so, I, I hope, sort of intuitively uh, accessible kind of a statement. So far, no lifeless universe has been discovered. So the occurrence of matter without the occurrence of life is, at least judging by the available empirical evidence viewed globally, something that does not happen, at least as far as we know. If you think there can be matter without life, that is a hypothesis that has not ever been verified by any discovery. If, and there's this a very important qualification, judging by the available empirical evidence viewed globally, okay? That's the key, that's the hidden uh, uh, sort of blade in this statement, okay? So in every case that matter has been there, in any universe known about so far, life has occurred in that same universe. But, as we know, we might have to say life has occurred eventually in that universe, all right? I do not mean there has never been a time, a moment, a single snapshot moment, or a billion such moments during which there was only matter but no life. So far, I do not mean that, right? The claim I've made, the obvious claim that uh, there's, there's been no, no universe found without life in it, does not equal the claim that there's been no moment where there's been matter and no life within that universe, right? That's why I said globally, considering the universe as a whole. Nor uh, does it mean that there is no part of the universe in which, if that part is considered in isolation from all other parts, there is only lifelessness, all right? So what we've established so far doesn't mean there's not some piece of matter floating uh, 100 million light years away from here that uh, considered just within certain boundaries is lifeless as opposed to uh, uh, endowed or connected to life. Uh, in it, the, the, the actual literal meaning of the statement, in every case that matter has been there in any universe, life has occurred in that same universe is true, even if there are immense periods of time where there is no life, considered uh, in isolation, and immense swaths of space considered in isolation. Okay, So that statement remains true, even if for a hundred billion years, there was only matter and no life, and then for just 10 seconds there was life. In just one spot, uh, you know, uh, on, uh, on the Jersey Shore, let's say, in one location on one planet in the universe, just that much life, it would still be true to say there has never been a universe uh, in which there is only lifelessness and no, no, not life, right? It's trivial, actually, right, when you think about it that way. Okay. The crux of the problem, of course, lies in those three words, considered in isolation, right? I said, uh, even if there are immense periods of time considered in isolation and immense swaths of space considered in isolation where there is no life, everything depends on how we divide things up, which means where our definition of one thing begins and our definition of another thing 
begins, where one thing begins and where it ends. What are the boundaries, the contours, what, where we consider this is this thing, and then after you pass a certain point, this is another thing. And this applies to time, moment, next moment, when. How do we divide those things? Where do we lay down that flag that marks the transition of one moment to the next moment? And also space, right? Well, I, I call uh, this iPod thing here one thing, and then this thing over here, not that thing. But as Buddhists like to say, that doesn't say it. Doesn't say this is where I end and that's where that begins. I say it. And we can I interrogate the reasons why, for example, oh, the whiteness stops, so I'm going to say the thing stops at that particular time in, in, in terms of the way I perceive or conceptualize. Um, everything I've been saying so far about life and lifelessness in the universe depends on how we do that stuff. Where do we draw those lines? How do we divide uh, one entity from another entity? And by the way, I said time and space, and another uh, equally so, I think you could say one concept from another or one emotion from another, or one feeling from another, one sensation from another. Where do we draw those lines and why, how? So to continue, what I mean when I say that matter without life has never existed, as far as we know, is just that, scientifically speaking, there has never appeared even one particle of any kind of matter found in any non-life-producing universe, considering that universe as a whole. Because no non-life-producing universe has yet been discovered. And similarly, there is no lifeless matter in any period of time that is not part of one total history that produces life. So going back to the scenario... If there were a trillion years where nothing happened and then for one spark of an instant there was life on the Jersey Shore that was immediately snuffed out, um, it would still be the case that that total history of the universe, there's never been the discovery of a history of the universe that doesn't make life. All right? Still pretty trivial, not saying very much, I think. So... All matter that has been ever been discovered has existed only in a universe that also contains life, and all lifeless times were part of the sequence of time we are now in, the total sequence of time, which is the sequence of time that produced life. No lifeless universe has been discovered. Among all the universes discovered so far, there's not even one that is devoid of life. I challenge you or anyone to show me even one particle of matter or even one moment of time from a universe without life. Okay. This point, we have been merely speaking empirically about what has so far been discovered. Very important. There are very few things we can know with absolute certainty without relying on empirical contingency. But now I'm going to advance this claim a little less trivially. Because this is, in fact, one thing we can know with absolute certainty. No universe will ever be discovered devoid of life. Now, if I started with that sentence, it would have sounded really weird uh, and really counterintuitive. But I think maybe you can already see why in these baby steps we've been taking, taken, taking, uh, we are very close to this conclusion all, all over uh, already. 
No universe will ever be discovered devoid of life, and I can know that with absolute certainty. As I can know very few other things, okay? Uh, we can know this for two reasons. The first is relatively trivial, perhaps, although some philosophers actually attach great significance to it. I, I put in scare quotes a couple words, globally, totally, one thing, uh, and uh, so far, disc, so far, right? Underline that and discovered. Now we're getting rid of so far because I'm actually claiming any universe that ever will be discovered will have life in it. And you understand, one, the first, as I say, rather trivial reason is that it's built into the word discover, right? Which is to say uh, the act discovering of discovering, insofar as we have a meaning attached to that word, uh, requires a living being. Ipso facto, where any, wherever any discovering is done, life is also present. Therefore, no universe of life can ever be discovered. Simple. I, this is, I say, some philosophers attach uh, a lot of significance to this. Um, I don't really, I think, so much. Uh, but sort of the anthropic principle is in this category. You may have heard of that in cosmological discussions, um, that there's a kind of looping of the, the inquiry into the conditions of life, right, and and what that implies about the search for those conditions. But um, even if we regard that as trivial, it still <laughs> uh, supports the initially shocking statement that we can know without with absolute certainty that no universe without life will ever be discovered. The second reason, though, I think is, to me, a little more interesting, um, has to do, again, with how we define the word universe. This is the hidden premise of the claims I've been making here. It's because we understand the idea of universe in a certain way that we can claim with absolute certainty that there will never be, and there can never have been, and there never could be, a lifeless universe. What do I mean by that? If the universe is taken in its broadest meaning, which is also, I think, its most commonsensical meaning, that word universe means something like all that exists. Right? All that exists certainly includes this planet Earth, this solar system, and this period of time. Right? The universe in this broadest sense, but also most common sense, is what includes any more narrowly construed what we might loosely call a universe. So sometimes people talk about alternate universes, right? Or possible universes, right? Or a prior universe or, or a, the next universe, right? But what I'm saying here is if we use the word universe in its most natural sense, it would have to be the universe that includes all those universes. It means all that exists. So whatever universes there are, I'm just going to use this word, the universe, if you prefer the all or some word like that, um, to denote that. So even though there may be possible sub-universes, let's say, that have no life, it would still be the case that we can know with absolute certainty that there will never be discovered a universe the universe, there can only be the one universe in that sense, right, uh, without life. And going back to the first things I said, without you, there can never be any universe existing without 
you. And without this word I'm speaking right now and this hand gesture, right? All of that follows in exactly the same way. If we call the sum total of all possible universes the universe, then it is obvious that there is no universe but this one, since this one, and since that is the one that also, among other things, includes this moment. Uh, and since this, this one universe wherein contains life, no universe can be discovered that is devoid of life. Whatever might be discovered is, by definition, part of this totality that includes our lives, right? So we've gotten to a slightly weirder claim uh, here, but hopefully well, we can, uh, we'll leave some time to discuss. Um, let's move further, though. All of the above is true, as I said, even if life exists only once, for a few million years or for 10 seconds on one small planet or one small uh, beach section of one state in the U.S., uh, even if there was no life for billions of years and in most of the universe there never has been and never will be life, let's say, even if the phenomenon life is a peculiar flash that occurs only on planet Earth between the Hadean era, eon, 45, 400 uh, 4,500 million years ago until this moment and then suddenly ceases right now and never arises ever again anywhere, it is still true that there is no universe devoid of life and there we can know with absolute certainty that there can be no universe devoid of life. Cold comfort, though, perhaps, uh, if those conditions, as I just described them, are all that that means. Nevertheless, People often contemplate those vast billions of years and expanses of space and speak of lifeless matter. And that's one of the things that I think motivates certain attitudes toward the universe and toward the world and toward the human condition and, you know, toward death uh, um, and toward matter. So we speak of lifeless matter and, you know, you can contemplate those endless voids uh, and uh, a certain... Uh, set of e emotional states and conceptualizations tend to accompany that way of looking at it. But going back to the earlier point, this thought of that lifeless matter, that is to say there was matter, it was lifeless for 50 billion years, and then it was endowed with life in this one place for 30 seconds, and then it was lifeless again, depends entirely on the way we divide things up. It makes sense only if we divide the world in a certain way. And that's why the inquiry now turns to why and uh, uh, we do that and whether there are reasons to do it in any other way. It is only because we are in the habit of dividing self and other or mind and its objects, or maybe those are two familiar terms, put it more generally, dividing inside and outside what where there are definite boundaries to what counts as a particular entity, as I said before. It's only because we do that that it is possible to speak of lifeless matter. It's only because we divide inside and outside in a certain way that it is possible to speak of, to understand the idea of lifeless matter, right? We decide what counts as the past, a past entity and a present entity through those divisions. Only if any one part of the universe is thought of as an entity truly separate from all other parts can anything be lifeless. And there's this thing in the tale of this one, too, which I'll get to at the end, which is 
it's only because we separate things in that way that anything can be thought of just as alive equally. The key question is how much of the universe do we consider to be one thing? Where do we draw the line that divides inside and outside? If me and that rock are one thing, well, then that one thing has life, right? That one thing, which I'm now renaming me rock, something like that, has life, just as the totality of my skin and my fingernails, one of which, if considered separately, is thought of as having life and the other is not, perhaps, uh, has life, the total system, right? If me and that rock are separate, then my body has life and the rock has no life, right? Simple. All right, now finally, Buddhism. <laughs> uh, Mahayana Buddhism, particularly that developed in the Madhyamaka school and further elaborated in Tantai Buddhism in China and Tendai in Japan, and I uh, training that... Uh, informed Dogen's early life, and I think informs his writings greatly, holds that the separation of inside and outside, anywhere applied, is impossible to sustain in a, any non-ambiguous way. In other words, a lot of what you find going on in the sort of dialectical uh, ar arguments and procedures of the Madhyamaka school, and um, the applications of those in Tantai's writings and meditation context is to kind of interrogate what you mean by inside and outside, where the boundary line is, whether that boundary belongs to entity A or entity B or both or neither. And in every case, these schools develop this ideologically by use of reductio ad absurdum arguments. In other words, they try to show that whatever way you may uh, try to conceptualize this non-ambiguously, it turns out to contradict itself. So these kind of concepts of inside and outside work in a, in a rough and ready business as usual way, as long as you don't think too hard about them. Okay. They are what we call conventional truths and they have their function in that sense. But if you really try to dig down and unpack them see what their, their, all their implications are, you soon run into antinomies or contradictions. Uh, so these reductio ad absurdum, reductions to absurdity arguments, uh, try to demonstrate that any way of drawing common sense dividing lines to divide one object in distinction to another end up being self-contradictory. Okay? I'm sure many of you are very, very familiar with that procedure. But there's another element brought in here uh, from Mahayana Buddhism that I want to talk about too, the Mahayana Parinirvana Sutra, which is not at all a Madhyamaka text. It's not a Prajnaparamita text. It does not use this procedure, though it, 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 it presupposes it to some extent, but doesn't taste or smell like a, a, a Madhyamaka Prajnaparamita text at all. Um, it claims instead uh, so, something about a term that we don't find in Madhyamaka texts, Buddha nature. It says all sentient beings have something it calls Buddha nature. But it also says this Buddha nature is, to quote the sutra, like space. Specifically like space in that, as the sutra says, it is neither inside nor outside. Or, as you also might interpret that line, 
it has no inside or outside. But I think we'll get to see that those two alternate ways of looking at it kind of entail each other. And so no inside, no outside is something that is developed logically in Madhyamaka, right, by reductio ad absurdum, whereas uh, in the the Nirvana Sutra, we have this idea of a Buddha nature, which initially said all sentient beings have it, but then we are told, yet this thing called a Buddha nature is like space and is not inside or outside anything, nor does it have an inside or outside, and we're not given an argument, a logical argument that that uh, is doing a deconstruction of the concepts of inside and outside. We're given an intuitive um ready to hand uh, experiential thing called space. So you want to know what the Buddha nature is like? Think about space. Think about how space behaves with respect to insides and outsides. That's how it is with the Buddha nature. All right. We'll get into that a little more in a second. So, but going back to Tiantai Buddhism, which is sort of my, my uh, special area of interest, um, it is for this reason that the Chinese Tiantai Buddhist writer Jingxi Zhanran lived in the 8th century in China, combining these two approaches, amended the sutra's claim that all beings have Buddha nature, arguing instead that even insentient beings have Buddha nature. And that Buddha nature must by all means not be said to be within sentient beings. It is not something hidden deep inside you. It is not the kingdom of heaven within. It is not the inner kernel or something like that. It cannot be inside or outside. And if some things are sentient and other things are insentient, it cannot be restricted within or without any particular ambit. If it were within sentient beings only, it would be restricted to sentient beings. So John Ron does not allow the idea that Buddha nature is a kind of divine essence or kernel within living beings. Nor uh, is it some kernel within each being living or unliving. Okay, so it's not the inner core of both the living and the unliving either. It's not deep inside them with some shell around them that is not it. You see that this means that the idea of having a Buddha nature is already kind of turned inside out, right? Because for one thing to have another thing implies that they are external to each other, even if one is in the middle of the other, right? That they are separable. There's a boundary line. Coin in my pocket, it's in there, but coin is coin, pocket is pocket, right? That can't be the case. Really, the coin is external to the cloth of the pocket, however you can, might conceive that. So, nor for Janran is the Buddha nature a potential to attain Buddhahood in the future, which is somehow how it's described, although it may, it may um, imply that, but uh, not a soul, not an Atman, not an essence, not a divine spark, not the kingdom of heaven within you. Rather, Buddha nature is simply the space-like all-pervasiveness that is revealed when we no longer think in terms of inside or outside when we eliminate, eliminate the idea of any given thing, that any given thing is inside or outside any given thing. That would be the Madhyamaka application there, right? Since we cannot unambiguously establish boundaries when thought through, the uh, entire commitment to insides and outsides can only be conventionally made coherent. All right. Um, 
in either a concrete or an abstract sense. Speaking of the failed exclusion of a stone from all things, we could also say all things have stone nature. You see, all sentient beings have Buddha nature just because there's no way to get outside of it, just like there's no way to get outside of space. And the combination of that idea with the Madhyamaka idea, which applies it not just to the Buddha nature as sort of a special case, but to every entity, simply by virtue of being an entity, by having putative boundaries or an identity at all, means that it's not something special about Buddhahood that makes it pervade all sentient beings. It's just a characteristic of any conventionally identified entity or experience, much in the same way that I said earlier. It's not just that the universe, uh, that life must exist in all possible universes, but you must, and this sound must, right? They all are uh, subject to exactly the same logic in that sense. So all, in Tiantai, it's very interesting. They say all sentient beings have the Buddha nature, but they also say all sentient beings have the stone nature or the devil nature or the every other nature you might want to name because the word nature for them simply refers to this space-likeness, this not having of an inside or outside, this peculiar form of omnipresence or omni-absence, if you like, too, right? Or the, the convergence of the two of those. Um. So the failed exclusion, that's the term I'm using, the failed exclusion of the rock from any other entity or of Buddhahood. Speaking of the failed exclusion of the quality of Buddhahood, that is the eternal realization, this is Buddhahood, of the eternity of each impermanent thing and the concomitant compassion, wisdom, and bliss that go with that realization, we say all things have Buddha nature. So really, Tantai says this, you know, they say we are always harping on all things that Buddha nature. That's just for upayic reasons. In other words, as a skillful means, because we're trying to enhance that awareness of the Buddhahood side. But it actually involves knowledge that we all have the Buddha nature and the dung beetle nature and all these other things. Okay. Ineradicably, right? Since space has no inside or outside, every entity in space, every physical being is not outside space. Now, what does it mean to say space has no inside or outside or is neither inside nor outside? We cannot put space on one side and the thing that occupies space on the other side, considering them two distinct entities. Two distinct entities cannot occupy the same place. If space and the object occupying it were two distinct objects, then they would be two distinct entities that could not exist in the same place. To be an object in a space is precisely to coexist in the same place as that space. So the claim about space returns, in John Ron's handling of it, to the Madhyamaka position that no thing can have a clear line dividing it from outside, from other things or spaces that are not it. Let me say a little more about that. that was, that's a very abbreviated description. But think about how weird space is as an entity. It's true that we have a name for it, so it seems like we're denoting something when we name it, right? And this is one reason Mahayana writers love this metaphor, because they say, truth be told, everything we talk about is just like that, right? As I said, when you think hard about it, 
You can't pin down what characteristics it has or doesn't have. That's what it means to have no inside or outside. And everything, the table, the chair, the rock, are actually in that same boat, although not so obviously so. In the case of space, well, I mean, think about this. Space is a, is a great intuitive way to think about something that neither exists nor doesn't exist, right? Or something that necessarily exists and it's whose necessary existence is the same as its necessary absence. Okay, but what do I mean by that? Well, think about what it means when you say something, it does not exist. It really is a way of unfolding a mental picture of taking that thing that you've named and removing it so that what is left is only space. Now, how can you do that with space itself, right? When you take space away, when you negate space, what you have left is just more space, a different kind of space or the repetition of space, right? Similarly, when you think about what's outside space, if you can think about outside, you're also positing more space, right? So any boundary you may make about space, I know someone's going to talk about physics in a minute, but we'll talk about that too, but the uh, is at the same time positing a, a greater space, right? So anytime you limit space, you, in so doing, you've expanded the space in which you've limited that space, right? It's a weird entity, and um, its relation, as I said a moment ago, to things that allegedly occupy space also, right? They're both there in the same place. Is it inside that space? Is it a, a separate entity like the coin in the pocket, the, 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 you know, this thing in this little piece of space that it exactly occupies? Did I displace the space when I put this here rather than here? Where does that space go? What does it mean to double up that space? Usually when one thing goes into a place, if there's another entity there, it has to displace it, right? Well, how do you think of that, right? Uh, Taigen, what is my time situation here? Do I need to... Uh, we want to leave a little time for questions. Yes, uh, yes, you have some more time, uh, and, and I'm eager to make some comment myself. But uh, yeah, you know, you can okay. go another uh, ten, twenty minutes or so. Okay, okay. I think I'll just try to read that. Um, so that's that's so, just some inkling, anyway, of what is meant by saying time has no uh, time, space has no inside or outside, and is neither inside nor outside anything. But every entity we can think of or point to is allegedly occupying space and co-present and co-extensive with some piece of space. And it should already be obvious that when I say a piece of space, I'm talking nonsense, right? So um, what is it co-extensive with then, right? Which is why we move into the uh, further plane. Not only does space itself have no inside or outside, the rock too has no inside or outside, and my body, too, has no inside or outside. This brings us back to the universe and its life. My life may be observed to last for only 60 or 70 years in one small spot on the surface of one small planet. But if my life has no inside or outside, there is no place in the universe that is an entity outside of this small life of mine. No universe has ever been discovered without my life in it, as I said before, right? No universe can ever be discovered without my life in it. I can therefore say that all sentient beings and all insentient beings not only have the Buddha nature, but have the Brooksaporin nature. 
the same is true of Buddha Shakyamuni or any other Buddha or any moment of experience of a Buddha, however brief, experienced anywhere or anywhere. Therefore, and this is why they say in Tiantai that all sentient beings and all insentient beings have Buddha nature, which really just means do not exclude the quality of Buddhahood, the experience of Buddhahood, right? Wherever or whenever that may be occurring. Life has no outside, therefore the universe as an inseparable whole is not lifeless. But life has no inside also. It has no essence that is divisible from lifelessness in a definitive, unambiguous, coherent, ultimately coherent way. So we can also say lifelessness has no outside. There is no universe devoid of lifelessness, and there never can be. Hence, we must not construe the claim that insentient beings have Buddha nature to mean one-sidedly that life is sort of the ultimate principle uh, and that life is deeper than non-life, that the universe is actually one big life. It is one big life, but it is also one big lifelessness. And these are the same thing. All right. So in other words, not a vitalism that says, you know, what, what everything really is beneath the surface is this sort of life force or something. No, at least unless you're also willing to say everything that appears alive is uh, also death, also lifelessness, also insentience. Uh, As much as all things are alive as me, in other words, I myself am dead as all things, all those millions of uh, lifeless uh, uh, expanses of empty space and whatnot. So the claim that all insentient beings also have Buddha nature, historically deriving from Jingxi Zhanran, is a way of rejecting the following ideas. This is just a recap. The Buddha nature is within us. Reject that any more than it is without us. The Buddha nature is an essence of purity or Buddha-likeness within us. Uh, A fortiori, that would follow. That Buddha nature is the nature of consciousness. That also comes up sometimes. The Buddha nature is a capacity or potential. Because if it's the potential to attain Buddhahood, that's also conceived of as something inside actuality, hidden like a seed under the earth or something, right? So the inside-outside thing also applies to that potential versus actual kind of problem. Uh, the vitalist idea also rejected that Buddha nature pervades the universe as an objective life force, rendering life more real and fundamental than lifelessness. Indeed, John Ron rejects even the idea that we or other things merely have Buddha nature, as I said before one is still distinct from what one, quote-unquote, has. Instead, we are, in our entirety, Buddha nature, and demon nature, and dung beetle nature, et et alia. So, um, and by the way, of course, those of you who've read Dogen's fascicle on Buddha nature will recognize that claim, right? Uh, All sentient beings are Buddha nature. Uh, We are to see each stone and each shard, each scent and each sight, each stalk and stick and plant and seed as the middle way itself, as space-like, pervading all things, even though it is itself nothing, just as space has no attributes but cannot be excluded from any uh, attribute. Neither includes nor excludes anything. Indeed, we can say that the pebble is me and I am the pebble, But not because both of us are really me, and not because both of us are really the pebble. Nor should we say that both of us are some third thing, life or Buddhahood, that is neither me nor pebble. The pebble is the ambiguity 
of me or pebble, and I am the ambiguity of pebble or me. Life is the ambiguity of life or death, and death is also the ambiguity of death or life. The universe is indeed one big life, but it is also one big death. And these two are synonymous. That's ten times as much as I can uh, uh, nutshell it. It is in its very lifelessness that the pebble displays its Buddha nature, that it reveals the depth dimension of my own being. It does not have to be painted over or supplemented with some additional thing called life or Buddhahood. So we must be careful not to equate the conception of Buddhahood of plants and trees or of stones and shards with a kind of pre-Buddhist animism, the belief that there is a separate individual spirit dwelling within each of these items. There is no spirit other than the item itself, and these items themselves also are not separate from one another. We must not imagine a life where there is no life. No life is already life, but only insofar as it maintains its status as no life. I will finish up. Wherever there is a thing, there is space. Wherever there is space, it is inseparable from whatever thing is, quote-unquote, in it. And the space that is co-present with anything is inseparable from the space that is co-present with every other thing in allegedly other regions of space. There is no universe without this pebble, nor can there ever be. There is no universe without the dullness, inertness, stupidity, lifelessness of this pebble, nor can there ever be. To deny the dullness, inertness, insentience, stupidity, lifelessness of this pebble is to deny the universe and to deny the pebble's Buddha nature. We need not seek the life within the pebble, its hidden vitality, its lifelessness is vital enough, for it is our own life and all other lives that crash against, into, and out of that lifelessness, neither within nor without it, definitively. Our lives belong to that pebble, not because it has some life separate from our lives, but rather precisely because it does not. The life of each thing, the lifelessness of each thing, the many lives of each thing, the deadness of each thing, the many deadnesses of each thing, the infinite simultaneous alternate lives and alternate deadnesses of each thing, the infinite simultaneous alternate deaths and lives of each thing, that is Buddhahood. And I will stop there. Thank you. Brooke, thank you very much. I will just add that what you have said today is the core teaching of our Soto Zen tradition. Uh, it's of our family style, from Shito to Dongshan to Dogen, who says all being is or all being Buddha nature. There's no even not even an is, and um, and to Suzuki Roshi. So uh, I really appreciate everything you've said and you've uh, unpacked it minutely. Uh, but thank you very much. Uh, other people, comments or questions, feel free. You can raise your hand. Um, Dylan, help me out. If people who are not visible want to go to the participants window on the bottom, uh, Bryant has his hand up. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Brooke, if I might address you by your first name. Um, I've been a fan, uh, just um, just to let you know, I've had your book, Emptiness and Omnipresence, for a long while, and it's um, 
very influential on my study of um, uh, the word that you didn't use at all in your talk once, I don't think, I don't remember hearing it, emptiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, um, I've studied the Majamaka, the Yogacara, I mean, the, the whole nine yards, as they say. Uh, and you really sort of knocked it out of the park. You encapsulated, you know, it all. Um, and I want to thank you for the, this talk, because I think this concept that, you know, that Buddha nature is not just some little golden Buddha statue, you know, inside of us wrapped in dark silks that we have to, you know, the, the defilements. It's, and once we polish off all those defilements, that little golden Buddha statue that's born within us is going to start glowing. Uh, I've met Buddhists, <clears throat> even Zen Buddhists, who maintain that, who have that reification of emptiness as, you know, one thing or another. And I think the value of your talk today was to emphasize that, um, without using that word, that um, uh, if I may cite the Vimalakirti Sutra, there's literally no way in language that we can talk about this because by starting to talk about it, we've already bifurcated reality into things and other things. Um, and so the famous silence of Amalakirti was the really, really the only way to express any of this. But since it's, it's necessary to use words in the conventional world for us to wrap our heads around things, I think you did an outstanding job. And, and I love the, the, the series of statements you made, uh, at the outset and wrapping it up, uh, in terms of, the logical possibilities, uh, I think, was an excellent way to approach it. Uh, one way I've approached it, and maybe you could comment. Uh, some people don't like it when I say this, but I, I say a, me- a good metaphor, as long as we're talking about it for emptiness, is hidden potential. Uh, because if, if nothing has inherency, there is a potential uh, in all the things that we think of as things, including ourselves and the rock and yeah. the iPod. And so in, in enough reiterations of time or, or instances of, of other yeah. possibility, you know, I, you know, the iPod could become me, the, the rock. Um, and another way I've thought of this whole boundarylessness of sentience and insentience, you know, the oxygen molecule inside me, mm. uh, well, is it, is it inside me or is it existing itself? within a whole that I call me. And then it, you know, so the whole idea of everything being composed of parts and yet a part of a larger whole. And so where does that boundary get drawn to actually define something as a thing? So I'm not sure if I have a question lurking in all of this stuff that I've just said, but it's mainly an encomium to what you, uh, what you gave us today. And, um, and I guess I'll wrap up just with a uh, a wish that that more and more people could come to understand emptiness not as a thing, uh, but simply, literally as it's defined, the non-inherency of a, of essence in anything which provides that potential. And so, um, what I've told people numerous times is we all have Buddha nature, which doesn't mean we are Gautama Buddha, you know, out of the starting gate. 
It means we all have this potential and which means we could become very evil beings. Hmm. And, but because of that Buddha nature, that emptiness, it, that makes the ethics component of the path so important because uh, what we do and say and think uh, is crucial to how we all develop as beings and as a society. So yes. I'll, stop, I'll stop there and thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Brian. I, I would like to comment on that. Um, uh, if I may, Brooke, just yeah. to add to, to that, um, Mary Lou Carroll has the brief comment, can we even speak of sentient or insentient? So I think that fits in. So, Brooke, thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I see the, the response to that, which is apparently so, which is very precise. <laughs> um, so... Um, well, I wanted to say yes. I, I I agree, right? This this first of all to Taigen's initial remark about uh, Soto Zen. Um, yeah, this is really interesting to me. You know that the, you know if you look at the tradition as it begins, just a little kind of historical note there uh, in distinguishing itself in China from from you know the sort of Mazu line of Zen, Basel in Japanese, right? The the uh, uh, which goes into the Rinzai line. Uh, this issue about insentient beings is oddly prominent from the get-go, right? It's uh, the, the Buddha nature and the preaching of the Dharma of insentient beings. It's right around the little after John Ren is writing, has written this tract uh, on this theme in, in Tiantai. Sort of, so um, there are a lot of different ways to think about the historical trajectories there, but it's definitely the case that this discomfort with some of the, maybe this reified picture of the Buddha nature that Bryant was talking about, or it's even, you might say, this insistent, you know, in a certain way, the the exclusion of reification is a different kind of reification, right? <laughs> so in a way, the, the, the you know, the, the early proto-Rinzai-esque um, Buddha nature idea was that it is sort of the function itself, right? It cannot be an entity, it cannot sort of solidify, it cannot be inert, it cannot be passive, it's sort of pure activity, picture again sort of bringing to mind maybe philosophically speaking sort of certain type of vitalism though a, a you know a kind of sophisticated one in certain ways that attempts not to reify that but that's why you reject you know if you meet the buddha kill the buddha that kind of thing anything that takes shape and holds is rejected or, or named right because the buddha nature is that which names and it is not that which is named and the not part, right? So there is something excluded from Buddha nature in a weird way, you know, kind of unexpectedly there. So I think there was pushback on what became Soto Zen from Dongshan and and uh, and uh, Caoshan, right? Tozan and uh, and Sozan. Um, that and then you know, in the case of Dogen, because he has this very deep um, academic tendai training uh, in his back pocket, a lot of this comes to the fore in a, in a new form. To Brian's point about potential, I just want to say a couple of things. One, one is, um, you know, what, one, one thing that they do do in Tiantai is, you know, they actually, I, I'm saying it's not this, it's not that, but that's not what they would say. They would say to talk about the little Buddha statue inside is an upaya that belongs to the separate teaching. And therefore, it is the preaching of the Buddha. It's all good. It's salvific. It can work, blah, blah, blah. But it needs to be opened up, and it's it's not the final kind of uh, description that you to to be rested in. 
but it's a starting point, right? It's kind of a stepping stone. And then as you think through those kind of conceptions, they start to fall apart in a constructive way, right? Which is to say, you already have the idea of this inner Buddha nature, and then you start to see, well, inner isn't going to really work for that. Um, I, I would say sort of the same thing. Potential is a good one. Um, I, I, I would prefer to put it a slightly different way, though I think it basically does the same work you're talking about, which is I, I, I hesitate with the word potential, as I mentioned during the talk, because we don't see – it's true that potential, let's say, in its Aristotelian sense and its Western philosophical heritage is a very weird concept already. It does – it isn't ontologically very consistent. So maybe that's good, right? Because it is kind of a a, a spanner in the works type thing. It kind of uh, mucks up the gears of the smooth functioning of, of regular ontology. But – I think most people do have a commonsensical notion of potential as something hidden within a thing, right? And in that case, you're going to get a similar kind of inner outer sort of problem. So, and it also, and it also kind of bifurcates present and future in a specific way. Right now, I am this. At that time, I will be that. I am now potentially that. Then, then I will be actually that, right? So, um, of course, all fine conventionally, right? But um, I wonder if the same work can't be done by just speaking not of the potential, infinite potential of a thing, emptiness as infinite potential, but e emptiness as um, necessarily infinite ambiguity of a thing, mm. right? Which which that then kind of collapses the, the, the time bifurcation in a way, which just means necessarily infinite means there – it, there can be, in principle, no way to limit the number of ways to understand what this thing is. It's an iPhone. It's an aspect of my life, going back to your point about parts and holes and things like that. There are infinite contexts in which it can appear, and its, its existence in, entails that there's no way to exclude any relevant context or the relevance of any context. Yeah. Anyway, you, you reminded me of Brian. Uh, please, uh, Brian, please. Other people have their hands up. Oh, my, my, my apologies. Uh, so, Hoketsu and then Yozan. Um, Brian, if you really needed to say something, please offer it. Please go ahead. Okay. So, um, you know, I'll confess I've never read any of your writings, Brooke. Um, but I've always really appreciated your presence when you speak at Ancient Dragon. And this morning I woke up with some verses in mind that I wrote down. And I think that they're just a response that I had before I heard your talk to your talk. So here it is. All right. a, a luminous pebble rests on the bottom of the vast ocean of compassion soaked with salty tears. This bright Buddha mudra, or maybe Buddha nature, illumines dark and light equally, riding the waves of the world. So I thought I was hearing your pedal before it dropped. So, <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you very much for that. You, you, that was before the talk, that one. That's lovely. Thank you. Is there a before and after or after the talk? <laughs> you tell me. Yes, 
Yes, uh, good morning. Thank you. That uh, was really wonderful as always. Um, I would like to ask, in a sense, and this actually echoes a bit of where Brian went before with his raising the question of ethics. Yeah. Um, would it be appropriate to say that all the discourse about, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, that all the discourse about Buddha nature and um, the misguidedness, one, one might say, of trying to establish insides and outsides um, reduces ultimately to uh, the same kind of trivialness that you started out with, with your discussion about, you know, whether we can find a universe without life, without us, and all that kind of thing. It, it, it does, and I, I, I hope everybody understands here the way trivial is being used. Um, but could that, could that be said? And if it can be said, uh, then the question becomes uh, just as there's uh, – you know, there, there's no way for us to establish any other universe that does not include us, or does not include life, um, oh, yes. is, is misguided um, because of the fact that by the time it be, you know, we can have that encounter, it is ipso facto the same universe, right? And so my question, I, I mean, in a way, it all kind of, can reduce to um, kind of what Dongshan came up with. Uh, just this is it. Um, uh, without any further explanation or inquiry into what is being denoted by this. Um, and if that is the case, what we're kind of left with is, um, you know, just this is it, um, you know, the universe is alive. Uh, it kind of raises the question of, well, and, uh, the term that you did not in- interrogate at all, life, and, uh, and, and sort of the so- soteriological implications of that. Okay, what do we do with it? Yeah. Which is, in some ways, the important question, at least for many practitioners. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great uh, comment um, about... So, so it, it does go back to the kind of ethics and practice question um, that Brian raised. Uh, I think Dogen was really um, uh, insightful on this point, right? And when he speaks of, um, you know, the oneness of practice and enlightenment. So, so which... I, I hope it should be clear that that is exactly what follows. This was sort of Dogen's way of solving the original enlightenment problem, as I see it, right? Which is to say, it is true that all beings are Buddhas, but it's only true when you are in a moment that is practicing. And so that moment itself is not definitively practiced from, you know, as it exists within another moment later or before, uh, it is uh, also equally demonic. So the, this is a this is sort of a beautiful expression of, you know, that's why we need practice, right? It's the fanning in the Genzo Genjo Khan bit, right? 
What does it mean for it to pervade everywhere? The, the Tiantai version of this is they will say in Chinese, which means when one is a Buddha, all are Buddhas, and when one is a demon, all are demons. And of course, that means both of those are always the case in one sense, which is the trivial sense you're talking about, right? Which is say, yeah, so what? So everyone's a Buddha, everyone's a devil, fine. But the point is, that's a conditional statement. By, you know, Buddha acts, all things are pervaded with that Buddhahood. But they don't stay that way unambiguously ever. It has to be constantly renewed. You know, in other words, it, 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 that is the, the ethical imperative, which is to say the world is tra- the world, but not just the future world, but the future and the past are constantly being transformed by whatever we do. And you see that that's both a that's both a kind of optimistic and a pessimistic claim, a tragic claim in a way, right? Because you can't fix it so it stays fixed, right? That it will always require more action in another moment to be re-established, right? So it's a, it's sort of that's practice enlightenment, right? It can't it doesn't reach an end point, right? And 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 it can all disappear. Even what was accomplished in the past vanishes, right? The second, you know, you, you take your finger off of that, that button, right? Um, I could I have more to say about the just this is it, but maybe we'll just, uh, if we have more time at the end, I'll go back to that maybe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brooke. Um, I really appreciate that response. Uh, David Ray, uh, you have a comment or question. Hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for that really fun and stimulating talk, sort of like the intellectual equivalent of mint toothpaste or something like that. <laughs> really delightful to me. Can I put that on a book jacket? <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Please do. I, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I like to write blurbs. Um, so um, I, I am relatively new to uh, this practice and tradition and, and, and still experiencing these uh you know, moments of, of realizing, wow, this is in this is in the tradition. Um, I have a question about uh, about about breath as as an experience of emptiness that you're describing. Because uh, a thought that I was having was, oh yeah, when when I sit and breathe, I get to experience the kind of emptiness that you're describing. Because on the one hand, I am snorting the cosmos with all its living and unliving beings, and on the other hand. At the same time, the cosmos is flushing me, um, and so I'm a skin bag and a bagpipe and, uh, yeah. uh, and, and a toilet and a, and a, and a disposal and w- whatever else. Yeah. Um, um, my question is, how far back does that way of thinking about breath go in this, in, in this tradition? Because it seems like there's an early point where, I mean, I could think that breath is just, you know, it's just, it's just a mindfulness anchor, but yeah. breath seems to be so much more interesting. Yeah, to think about. I love that. Yeah, I mean, in other words, in terms of of thinking about the boundaries between self and other, and between one thing or another, and even the the sort of periodicity or the cyclicity of the inhale exhale. Man, it's an inter- really interesting historical question. Um, I mean, right? There's Anapanasati within early Buddhism, which, as you say, is an anchor for meditation. But there's also something happens in China because this there's a kind of qi thing going on, this theory about qi, 
um, which predates Buddhism, right? And that that was a you know among other things a cosmological theory because you know in China they didn't really have uh, atomism and the way they conceived matter was in terms of the five phases, all of which are qi, right? So there, there was a kind of it's like water and ice cubes, to use a famous metaphor there, right? The Buddhists like to say water and waves, but Confucian thinkers like Zhang Zai and the Song Dynasty will say, you know, so this is the, the ice cube, right? And and it's a solid chunk of qi, breath, literally breath. And then this is like the water, right, where it's sort of dissipated. And that periodicity, in and out, exhale, inhale, consolidate, dissolve, is the sort of yin-yang process of qi, right? So a lot of that, first of all, that sense of all-pervasiveness of qi, though invisible, it's still material, as it were. It's the same matter that's here. And that and that breath, you know, um, is seen as sort of that, the linking point, right? The kind of interface hinge on those two sides of the thing, right? Between the fluid and the, and the concrete, where yin changes to yang, yang to yin. I can tell you historically in the way Buddhist meditation texts start to work. Again, the ones I know best are the Tiantai texts. And I do notice this, that when, um, say, Juri, the founder of Tiantai, has a lot of discussion of um, meditation on the breath. Um, One of them is um, the... the six, the six Dharma gate, wondrous Dharma gates. Okay. And, and those are an old category from India, but he's really riffing on them in all kinds of ways. One thing he says though, about the breath is to visualize it pervading the body, which I think some meditation masters specifically instruct you not to do. Right. Um, and then on exhale pervading the universe. So, you know, you sort of are, 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 that is the kind of medium for, uh, um, I, I suppose, facing to some extent the rigidity of that boundary. Um, but a lot of different variants on that. And he also says things like that about burning incense too, right? Like now visualize this smoke permeating all Dharma realms and so on, you know, um, in ritual contexts. So um, I, the way you just put it, you know, of that kind of flushing and, uh, you know, per, mutual permeation and drinking in and so on, I, I can't think of anything that's quite that sort of vividly concrete. But there is definitely development and change going on in the way chi and breath and, and stuff are, are worked in there. I'll say one more thing about it. Uh, well, this will probably take too much time. I was going to say in Taoist inner alchemy, which kind of comes out of the encounter with Chan, it gets really weird too, because Anapanasati is then conceived on in terms of this alchemy of chi, where consciousness is like a fire, a flame that is applied to a, a, a liquid version, usually bodily fluid or even sexual fluids, which are kind of by by concentrating on the breath rather than on external objects, you're like bringing this thing to a boil. And that transforms it into this other form, blah, 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 things like that. So there was definitely kind of an interesting mismatch of conceptual schemas about the breath in Buddhism in India and China that was productive throughout these traditions. I'll just say that. It's a, it's a great question, but it's hard to answer in a, in a concise way. 
that's really helpful. And, and thinking about the, the, the concept and word chi is, is really helpful. I was once teaching um, high school students, English-speaking high school students in, in Beijing who were sort of making fun of my liking Buddhism. Uh, and we were reading, uh, we happened to be reading Milton about the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah. And, you know, they, they were sort of rolling their eyes at this, you know, transcendent nonsense. And I said, well, do you guys think that there's qi? And they all got a little embarrassed because you can't speak Chinese and not think that, that qi is right. a thing. Because a car is, is, is a qi wagon and so right, on. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. It's, exactly. It's, it's similar to the way you can't really – there's no discussions in China about whether tian exists or doesn't exist, right, it, which is heaven. It's either either it's the sky or you or more or less, but there's no it is or it isn't question, right? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Brooke and David Ray. Um, before Brooke goes back to talk about Dongshan, uh, Juan Pablo has a question coming from Patagonia. Hi, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, one is, um, usually I think I understand Buddha nature or Buddhahood as maybe pantheism or interpenetration. So can you speak a little bit about these two words and how they relate to Buddhahood? And, and if you can expand a little bit about this concept of ambiguity, I think it's, 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 it's from you is how you interpret um, a Buddhahood, or it's in the in the text in in the classical oh. text. Oh, okay. Uh, so about pantheism and interpenetration, right? I mean, I'm I'm. You can talk about um, similar issues that uh, to the ones we've already mentioned. Maybe come up with with that term pantheism. I'm okay with it. I often teach on the history of pantheism. I, I'm a uh, which goes back to a description of Spinoza, right? And so if you look at the way, you know, pantheism in that meaning is developed, um, there are various um, interpretive possibilities there, right? And a lot depends on, again, this question of appearance and reality. Do you conceive of the the godhood within everything or identical with everything, Um in some way restricted. Um, I think it's a little too narrow for the reason that I just mentioned, right? Because at least in this conception of universal Buddhahood that I'm talking about, it's, it, it's equally universal, you know, dung beetlehood or something else, which I don't think works with pantheism because in pantheism, there's one specific thing, quality or entity that is universal, omnipresent, and everything else is finite. At least that's one way to read Spinoza and many pantheisms. You know, you have the totality of substance, the attributes are themselves um, infinite, and so on, but modes are finite. And so, you know, I think that the thing that tips over here is to say, well, let's say emptiness. Emptiness is one word for the unexcludable or the universal condition of beings or something like that. But what happens, why that doesn't just land as saying, well, emptiness is everywhere and in everything and the condition of all things, just like God is, is that emptiness, of course, self-empties, right? It, it, it is empty, the emptiness of emptiness. Now, this is another place where there's interpretive uh, dispute about how to understand emptiness of emptiness or e even when that term is not used, right? 
I think the Indian schools, broadly speaking, including Madhyamaka, tend to read it. Maybe this is true in Tibet too. That's very general overgeneralization, perhaps, but tend to see emptiness as emptiness as like a further move away from sort of the concrete, definite content. So you're attaching to a bunch of stuff. Here's emptiness. will get you to stop attaching to that. But now you're attaching to emptiness. So let go of that too. And, and it's even less of a definite thing, right? The way they read that emptiness of emptiness in Tienta is to say, well, emptiness is not definitely empty in the same way that a cup is not definitely a cup, doesn't have any, any uh, definite identity as that thing. What does it mean not to have definite identity as emptiness? It means that emptiness also means to provisionally posit, right? in other words, to fill, mm-hmm. to be full, filled, right? That's Otherwise, it would just be emptiness and it would have a self-nature, right? So... Uh, that's why you get the three truths in Tiantai. So Kong Jia Chong, the emptiness, provisional positive, the mean, and they're all synonyms, though opposites. So I think that's the point. I think you actually can construct a reading of Spinoza if you read him very carefully and connect a lot of dots that isn't that far from that. But I would say generally pantheism is understood with one term that's very fixed. It's either infinity against finitude, right? As opposed to finitude or something like that, even conceptually. Interpenetration, I have no problem at all with. I think it's just a question of unpacking what that means, right? So it's one thing within another, penetrate, right? But what does that actually mean? That's where this ambiguity point comes in. Yes, ambiguity is not a word that, it's an English word, it doesn't exist in the Chinese sources, right? So I, it is an interpretive um, uh, heuristic that I use when trying to understand what does emptiness mean, right? It doesn't mean the definite lack of something, and it doesn't mean the definite presence of something. So what's an intuitive way we can describe um, something that is neither present nor absent, right? I, some I, Other people who write on Tiantai sometimes use the word ontological indeterminacy for emptiness, mm-hmm. I prefer ambiguity, ontological ambiguity, I'm perfectly fine with that, because indeterminacy can sound like you have kind of a blank that is to be determined, whereas the point about ambiguity is it's always something definite in its presentation, right? It's not that there's, that there's anything fuzzy or vague about it, you know, so I always use this example, some of you, I guess, Brian, you will be tired of this because it's in my book already, but you know, you take a, a figure like that, right? And you ask, what is it? And somebody might say, oh, it's a circle. Or someone might say, it's the letter O. Or someone might say, it's a receipt. No, somebody might say it's a zero, right? So, um, but the point is, it's not a blank and it's not fuzzy and it's not blurry, right? It's perfectly distinct. There are a very sharp line there, right? And it's only when I then do some stuff like this, right? It gets disambiguated. And now you, most people will tend to say, oh, it's the letter O. I see now it's part of that series, right? And then you can just say, to get an idea of what ambiguity is supposed to mean and why I think that's a good way to understand the Tiantai notion of emptiness, right? We're in multiple contexts at once. You see that? So, and of course, now multiply that by infinity, right? 
so that there's no way to exclude further things that reveal new things about that. That's where we get Brian's term potential, right? But you don't have to go inside the, the O to find the zero. And they are the same thing. Nothing has changed. That's why Tantai like to say, you know, not, not one bit of delusion is cut off in, in Buddhahood. You know, it's all exactly what it was always, right? And yet it's all completely different, right? So it's a zero, it's an O, it's a circle, right? It's the corner of a triangle if I want to draw a couple more things. But it's not indeterminate in the sense of a, you know, blurry, blank thing, you know, waiting to be filled in. That, that's why I like that word ambiguity, right? It's definite. That's like jia, ke in Tiantai, right? But to be definite is to be, have, you know, infinite, uh, in, unexcludably infinite, am, ambiguous, alternative, alternate readings. Does that help one? Okay. So uh, before we close, Brooke, you said you might offer some further oh, yeah. brief comments about Dongshan and just this is it. Please oh, do. Yeah, sure. I mean, I just wanted to say, I know if you know that story, you're very familiar with, you know, the context, which is really fascinating, right? So, you know, it's, it's Dongshan talking to, to his teacher and he says, well, a hundred years from now, someone asks me what, what you were truly like or what, what the truth of you was. And he says, the master says, just this is it. And, and then they say, and then he's, okay, I got it. And then he says, and after this, it's going to be hard for us to meet again. And uh, I think the master says, after this, it's going to be hard for us not to meet again. And he goes off kind of puzzled, right? But the interesting thing about it is, Dongshan thinks he understood it right away, Jurjega, sure, right? And so that means we are being alerted that there are alternate ways to understand that phrase, right? One of them would be, oh, whatever is before you, that's the Buddha nature, right? Or it would be, you are the Buddha, very familiar Chan Zen answer, right? In other words, you know, this is kind of like Dogen and Bendoa talking about the fire god comes looking for fire type of thing, right? Where it's repeated. And he says, oh, the fire guy comes looking for fire. You are fire and you come looking for fire. You're riding a horse searching for a horse, right? What is the truth of you? Just this is it. You before me, the one asking this question type stuff, right? Could mean that, right? And that would be sort of that maybe more Linji Rinzai type of way of reading it. And so he goes off with that idea seemingly, right? Or what, or, you know, whatever is manifest, whatever is springing up. Um, this present moment, right? This thing that says these words, etc. But then he, we have the famous story where he crosses his bridge and he sees his reflection. And he goes, oh, now I get it. And he literally says, I almost got this completely wrong, right? I thought I understood it. But now seeing my own reflection in the water and what he then gives this famous verse, right, where he says, um, don't search externally, that would be the fire god comes looking for fire first reading, right? Don't search externally. It is yourself. It is your own activity. Just you are it. Who is the Buddha, right? Who is the one asking this question? He says, don't search externally. Not searching externally. I meet him everywhere. Meeting. That was that theme that came up earlier, right? Is an external, uh, you know, um, sort of surprise it, the very opposite of it is just sort of this internal principle, right? It is, again, about inside-outside, an encounter, right? 
an encounter with uh, uh, some extrinsic thing that it sort of imposes itself. So by not searching outside, I find him everywhere outside, not inside. I meet him everywhere, right? Uh, I am precisely him and he is precisely not me. Both of those, right? So whereas the first reading, I think, Jurjega, sure, just this is it, sounds like a pure affirmation of identity. Uh, you are it, whatever it is, it's this, right? But but because it has no content, because it's just whatever this is, it's always a new this, right? So it's always also what it was not expected or was not contained or controlled, you know, or, um, you know, possessed within any, any particular um, self, right? So... I just want to say, like, yes, that is a contentless thing in a way, right? In other words, it's trivially just just this. But the way those stories are written, it does want to point to the fact that there are multiple ways, and ambiguity again, uh, of understanding this, right? And so it's kind of a, a process at, that, that you, you go through as you contemplate that story, right? And then the position we end up with there is, indeed, I, I agree with Taigen's initial remark that this is, this is where Dongshan sounds very tentai to my ears, right? Which is to say, I said, life, lifeless Buddhahood delusion, these kind of paired opposites, you know, the pebble is the ambiguity of me and pebble, and I am the ambiguity of pebble and me. That's what happens here with the, I am him, but he's not me, right? I can't identify, I'm not, and, and this answers a bit Juan's question about pantheism maybe too, right? I don't just say I am the Buddha, or Buddhahood is everywhere, I'm also not the Buddha, and that is the mode of, you know, the identity, or maybe, you know, I like to say the Mobius stripping between those two, is what um, is actually being being pointed at here, I think. Thank you very much, Brooke, for a very stimulating uh, presentation today and for great responses.